I would have every donor, donor advisor, philanthropist, foundation wake up and realize that 10% of what they're giving to the movement, if put into civic infrastructure, will put rocket fuel behind the progress of the movement. And at a time when we are about to, again, fight for democracy, we need to recognize that the power plant needs some attention. Because if it breaks, there's no other choice. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Julia Barnes. Julia is CEO at the Movement Cooperative, an important enterprise that works to provide independent progressive organizations common technology and data infrastructure. Before her current position, Julia had an impressive resume in progressive politics, including executive director roles at the Vermont Democratic Party and the Association of Democratic State Chairs, as well as serving as the New Hampshire and National Field Director for Bernie Sanders in 2016. She's also been management consultant and advisor to many other progressive organizations. I learned a lot about Julia's path and her philosophy of leadership, as well as what is happening at Movement Cooperative and in other areas of the progressive infrastructure. If you're interested in such matters, you should definitely listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Julia at Movement Cooperative. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Julia, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Julia Barnes. I'm the chief executive officer at the Movement Cooperative. I have been a organizer, a campaign manager, a activist, a progressive consultant, a manager in progressive campaigns and organizations for almost 20 years now. I live in Burlington, Vermont. I don't know what else. <laughs> I have a varied and long resume, um, so it's hard to figure out what to pull. You definitely do. A lot of experience, a lot of very relevant experience. And I often, when interviewing someone with a long resume like that, I want like three hours and it's never really what fits, but because I'm always curious about the, the path that people take to the careers that put them in positions like you have. Tell me quickly about like how you grew up and your education. Yeah, absolutely. I was born in New England. Um, but I have lived all over the country, West Coast, Midwest. I really consider myself somebody who grew up in the Midwest. I went to high school in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. The story that I like to tell about how I got into politics is that I was very, very close with my father, who was a Vietnam veteran, socially liberal, and very fiscally 
conservative. And so for me, part of rebelling when I was in high school was like staying out too late and like maybe a little underage beer, but also it was arguing progressive politics with my father. And over the course of my life, he was really sort of my like grade A number one debater when it came to sort of like honing my own values uh, and my own politics. From Iowa, I was like doing little high school volunteer things for state Senate candidates and local races. And then I went to college at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., where I double majored in women's studies and political science. I was making calls for Howard Dean out of like my dorm room. And my dad really kept pushing on me to sort of like hone my politics. I was real I was working for a women's economic justice nonprofit in Washington, DC. And when my dad was in town, we were having dinner fighting about stem cell research. It was really something that sort of made my made my life. After college, my dad got sick and he and my mother were living in New Hampshire at that point in time. And he got really sick and it necessitated me having to move from DC to New Hampshire to help take care of my dad. And so while I was there, I was working two jobs, one for health insurance and one for money, just because this was pre-Obamacare time, now that I'm dating how old I am. You know, it was the first time I saw a million dollar health insurance bill, right? And I listened to my mom fight with insurance companies about what they were cherry picking for my dad's care. I saw him sort of this like giant in my life, this person who had always been so strong and had helped sort of form me really just struggling to to heal with the pressure of all this sort of like economic strain for being sick in the first place. We were very lucky. I think if it hadn't been for my dad's insurance, not only would my parents have been bankrupt, but we would have lost the house. I would have been bankrupt. My brother's future would have changed dramatically. This one serious illness would have had this ripple effect through generations of our family in such a deep way. And it really fomented for me at the time, and this was about 2007, that like I had to do something about it, right? You know, sort of young and full of vim and vigor and had just had this like transformative experience. And luckily my father was healing and I was in New Hampshire. So what do you do during a competitive primary season when you're in the first in the nation primary, you jump on a campaign. And so I applied to like three campaigns. I applied to the Obama campaign, the Clinton campaign, and the Biden campaign. I had always been a very big fan of then Senator Biden because I had done a lot of research and writing on Violence Against Women Act while I was in college. And they were the first ones to call me back. So I spent uh, nine months sort of like on the road, one of like the tiniest staffs in New Hampshire, like campaigning for then Senator Biden and having some like really amazing experiences. And like many things with campaign work, if that bug bites you, it is it is in your blood. And I was in love. I was in love with driving around Hillsborough County in my beat up Subaru, talking to town chairs and, and um, state representatives trying to get their endorsement. I loved running around in my like jeans and converse at like state fairs, trying to like persuade people and get your stickers on them, right? I loved having little victories every single day that made it feel like you were 
contributing to a larger narrative of what the what the country should be, what our aspirations should be. And that bug stuck with me for for a long time. And I manifested a lot of that campaign work in New Hampshire, where I sort of became part of part of this like generation of organizers that started in the 07 various primary campaigns and then just stayed in and around the state doing governor's races and the 2008 coordinated campaign, the Shaheen Senate race. And then I moved from that type of campaign work into Organizing for America, which was the Obama campaign sort of housed in the DNC. So I spent the years there fighting for the Affordable Care Act and uh, marriage equality and really sort of like was close to what it felt like was, you know, what the establishment was pushing for the president's agenda, which I believed very deeply in and stayed with that organization through the 2010 midterms worked with the state party there, one of the best state parties in the entire country, the New Hampshire Democratic Party, not that I am biased. So the Obama 2012 re-elect came around. I was at OFA at the time. I was the statewide field director. And about two months into the re-election campaign, my dad got sick again. He had developed an aneurysm in his aorta and you know, the prognosis was questionable. And we sort of at the time as a family had been through this big thing where we kind of like, were taking it all in stride. And my father was always a very sort of like dry and sarcastic man who didn't like to show when he was afraid, he would make a joke out of everything. And so for a couple of months, I tried very hard to do both. Ultimately, I had to step away from the reelect campaign. You know, when you have that time, you know, when you sort of have that threat in your family, you want to be able, if you can, to take the time to be there. And so luckily, dad bounced back, and I was more furious about the experience that he had had, right? It was different now, all these years later, there were provisions in the Affordable Care Act that protected him better. But that didn't mean that his experience with the VA hospitals or VA doctors or reimbursements was happening quicker. And I knew I had to do more. So when it was time to look for a job again, you know, I I love state parties and I looked to the West and our neighbors in Vermont were trying really hard to pass the first state-based single payer bill during that time. And so I packed my shitty little Subaru and my dog and my fiance at the time. And I drove to Vermont where I ran the Vermont Democratic Party for the next four years Over the course of that period of time, we successfully swept two coordinated campaigns. We put the governor, who was advocating for single payer, through a very, very difficult re-election campaign in 2014. But over the course of that time, politics being what it is, the sort of dream of single payer in Vermont got abandoned to the realities of bureaucracy, and I felt really disillusioned. Um, and was ready to like leave politics and go do something else, right? If you've, if anybody has spent any time in Vermont, there is like a beautiful, thriving startup community of environmentally responsible businesses. If you could think of your dream job as a progressive, where could you potentially find it? And it's in, in Burlington. So I was going to take a step away. But over the course of my time at the Vermont Democratic Party, I'd gotten to know Senator Sanders, obviously, as like a deep ally of the VDP and his staff, particularly his state director, Phil Fermanti, who was an extraordinary person. And I had started to hear rumors of like, oh, Bernie's going to run for president. And for a while, I didn't actually think that that was a real thing that was going to happen. 
I came to Vermont from a state like New Hampshire where politics is super professional and campaigning is super professional. And when I got to Vermont, everything felt a little bit more grassroots, a little bit more sort of like behind the curve of like what modern campaigning looked like. And so it was hard for me to believe it was going to happen. And then lo and behold, he decided to do it, held this 5,000 person rally down at the waterfront. And I was like, good, good for him. I'm really glad that his voice is going to be a part of the conversation. So they called me, asked me for coffee, asked me if I wanted to go back to New Hampshire for Bernie. I said yes. And then I said no. And then I said yes again. I was really nervous about what it would mean to have been at this place for myself personally, where I had become so disillusioned that I was ready to step away and like, did I want to commit to this like big thing? And ultimately I decided, yeah, I do. Because like running a New Hampshire state program is sort of like the Super Bowl of presidential primary politics. I was already at a place where I wanted to recommit to my values. And at that point in my life, I wanted somebody who was never going to apologize for fighting for Medicare for all, never going to caveat how we needed to get to there watching and living through my dad's healthcare experience had really radicalized me in that way and sort of pulled my politics out from just like doing the good thing to get it done with Democrats to like seeking a more aspirational future. So I went back to New Hampshire. We crushed. Bernie won the New Hampshire primary by the largest margin in the history of modern presidential primaries in the state. It arguably made his 2016 presidential campaign viable. I, you know, I was riding the ride. I loved it. We built the most extraordinary campaign in New Hampshire, where they essentially like gave us a budget and left us alone. We were the first data department on the campaign. We were the first in-state digital program. We ran a rural canvas across the state in places where people had never bothered to go before. It was really like an extraordinary ability to vision everything that I had ever wanted to see happen in a campaign. And after we won New Hampshire, I hit the road and ended that cycle as Bernie's national field director, at which point, <laughs> yeah, see, like it does, you could do three hours just talking about something. <laughs> I haven't even bugged you with a bunch of questions, which I could have at every step along the way, because there's so much to learn from you. Right. Yeah. I know. So when Bernie was done, um, Chairman Ray Buckley was the chair of the New Hampshire Democratic Party, who had been very good to us over the course of the presidential primary when a lot of the establishment in New Hampshire was like very upset that Bernie was even daring, you know, um, great people who I love, but they were on the other side of sort of this, who is the inevitable candidate argument. Chairman Buckley asked me if I would come to the Association of State Democratic Committees um, through the end of that cycle, because the team in Brooklyn and the team in DC were looking for um, a senior leader who was like familiar with the state party system, who had the credibility of the cycle. Um, and so I did that through the end of 16, the beginning of 2017. Julia, can I stop you just a little bit on that? Because I, ASDC, important organization that a lot of people don't know a lot about. I've interviewed the head of that. But tell me about during your tenure there, what was it doing? What was going on there? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I will say that state parties are unquestionably the most taken for granted part of the progressive and democratic ecosystem in the entire country. We're talking about 
organizations staffed and manned by people who are not getting a lot out of it, who are there for the progress, who want to see the betterment of their state, who are on the front lines when it comes to some of the most malicious legislation being passed at the state level across the country. And in 2016, the state parties were really focused on running extremely strong coordinated campaigns in support of the ticket. It was a challenging time to be at the ASDC because when you sort of get down to the like last months before the general election, there's sort of this like, you know, where does the power lie? Is the DNC making the decisions? Is the presidential campaign making the decisions? And ultimately, the state parties are sort of the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to who gets to say how things are manifested, but they are the front line when it comes to seeing when things are going wrong and hearing when things are going wrong. And so it was a really challenging time to be there. Myself, like everyone else in the Democratic infrastructure, whether it be the DNC or the campaign in Brooklyn or the Bernie alums who were trying, you know, to throw down for the general election, were just destroyed to an almost cellular level at the outcome of election night. One of the things that was really interesting in the months after, particularly for the ASDC, is that there was going to be this kind of transformational conversation in the building. Congresswoman Wasserman Schultz had resigned over the course of that campaign. Donna Brazil, who's extraordinary, had been in as the interim DNC chair. There was this vacuum of like, where is the party going to go next? Um, what does that mean for the state parties who rely so deeply on financial partnership with the DNC to exist? What does it mean for the data infrastructure of the party moving forward? Because state parties really are the front line when it comes to cleaning and improving data at a very like hyper-local level. Um, The DNC does an extraordinary amount on the hard side to improve data, but ultimately it's the partnership with the state parties that, that really matters. And so there were a lot of open questions and we started 2017 the ASDC started the DNC chairs race, right? Like we had the first forum at the ASDC meeting in Denver in February. And it was sort of like a prelude to what that year was going to be, which was like incredibly intense internal campaigning across the candidates for the chairpersonship. It was fascinating to be there. But ultimately, like for me personally, um, I had kind of hit a point where like, my sort of grief about 2016 wasn't getting the attention it deserved, I think, from me. You had sort of the double whammy of Sanders losing in the primary, followed by Trump winning in the general. Like, that's almost unimaginably rough. Yeah. I mean, well, look, for like us Sanders people, I don't think there was ever a moment in my brain where I thought... I am doing this because I know if I work hard enough, Bernie will get into the Oval Office. So many of us had this very reality-based approach to it, which is like, there are a lot of forces against us. Financial, organizational, political, demographic challenges, geographic challenges. I don't think anybody was, was immune to that. But those challenges aside... The moments of hope and aspiration over the course of that campaign was like something that I had never experienced before. To be able to see 
and hear people who had been so disillusioned with politics, who were so disconnected from their state parties, from the idea of volunteering on a campaign, the idea of reaching out to their communities, put all of it down to believe, to like fight for their values. It's extraordinary. It wasn't a primary of like, what's the least offensive choice? What is the safest choice? Like the Sanders campaign for all of its dysfunction, and there was much, it was hopeful, joyful, and aspirational. And for me, the New Hampshire team is like the best team I've ever worked with. Our shared experience in that state has yielded like, you know, like half a dozen marriages, long-term relationships. I think there are a couple like New Hampshire for Bernie babies. There are definitely a lot of New Hampshire for Bernie dogs, like shared custody dogs, Um, you know, it was aspirational and true and, and real in a way like I'd never experienced. And so the, the loss of that was hard, but it wasn't the loss of the presidency that was hard. It was the fact that now this future that we had been fighting for, these values that we had been fighting for, they didn't just take second place, right? They were taking dead fucking last. Uh, pardon my language, I curse a lot. I think it's appropriate in that case. Yeah, they took absolute last. Um, and so when I went to the ASDC, it was sort of like, this is a thing that I know. I love state parties. I have deep respect for Chairman Buckley. I was really familiar with the DNC, having worked um, with OFA and with the DNC for many years. I felt like it was kind of a comfortable choice. And ultimately, I was miserable. I had sort of stepped back into a different kind of work and it just wasn't making me happy. So I left and I went to Virginia to run Tom Perriello's gubernatorial campaign. He was primarying Ralph Northam. It's almost like a rerun of the Sanders campaign in a certain way, isn't it? Well, but that's like kind of a reductive like framing of it because Tom, Tom was, is like very progressive and has really had really smart ideas about what to do with the state, right? He was the first person to talk about a $15 an hour minimum wage in Virginia, to talk about um, uh, challenging the right to work laws. He was actually talked about enshrining choice into the constitution over the course of that campaign. We had a policy shop that was like coming out with, it was amazing what they were, what they were putting together. How did you get recruited for that? How did, how did it happen that you become the campaign manager? I think folks saw sort of like what we built in New Hampshire, even if the program that I had run had been a total disaster, which it was by no means, um, you know, like Bernie coming to win the the New Hampshire primary by that large of a margin is sort of like whoever was there got to wave that flag, right? (laughs) But I got to wave that flag. And so that's how I got introduced to Tom. And then I went down to Virginia and sat with him and we talked we were very values aligned with like what the purpose of the campaign was going to be. He's obviously somebody that I respect very deeply. It's a big, scary thing to like take on kind of a incumbent class. Right. And um, governor Northam had full backing from governor McAuliffe. He had a head start. He was up on us in fundraising by millions of dollars he was grabbing up political endorsements across the state very quickly. They ran a good campaign, but what Tom wanted to talk about was what transformational change could look like in the face of a Trump win, right? And we did really well. Like, we did really well. Tom 
got to talk about all of the issues that he wanted to. We got to really push Governor Northam to the left. We built a really interesting coalition where not only had Bernie come out to endorse Tom, but like John Podesta was also an endorser. He really was a a progressive brain that was seen as somebody who could really get things done in a strong way by folks who had worked in D.C. for a long time. A lot of people don't know this, but that was like a pretty close race until the end. Um, We had made up an extraordinary amount of ground. The field team was like on fire across the state. Our GOTP program hit every metric that it was supposed to. It was a shame that, that we lost that primary, but it was a really good experience. And I think Tom was exactly the right type of candidate that I always want to work for. Somebody who wants to change things in a real and like transformational way. And he went on, right, to have this like great career in philanthropy and continues to contribute really deeply to our progressive policy landscape in a way that is unrivaled. Such an amazing set of experiences already in your career. And we're just at 2018. I know. Well, well, you also picked up a master's in business along the way there. A little out of left field. What was your thinking? I think a lot of like campaign hacks take like a grad school vacation and they go to like HKS or they go get their master's in public policy or master's in government. When I was in Virginia with Tom, a lot of progressive organizations were endorsing Tom, just like a lot of progressive organizations had endorsed Bernie. And from my vantage point, what I could see is that a lot of them were struggling to just exist on their own, let alone do something good for the candidates that they were supporting, right? In like 2016 on the Bernie campaign, I watched national progressive organizations spend way too much money on tactics and messaging that was just like fundamentally broken. And it was all to me, a consequence of the fact that we didn't have enough people on the progressive left who understood how to build resilient systems and take the learnings of the business community and build it into an evaluated process for how to scale their organizations, how to protect and scale them. So I was like, where can I learn that? And University of Vermont has a really innovative MBA program that focuses almost exclusively on environmental sustainability and startups. And so I did it. I came back to Vermont. I did it for a year. I got my MBA. And while I was doing it, I started my consulting business and began picking up clients. Let me ask you about that MBA, because I'm curious what you learned that you feel applies to all of those progressive organizations are trying to scale. What are the key things that you took out of that, that people who haven't done that should know? A couple things. One is sort of cultural, right? We have absolutely abandoned the expectation of management training in our promotion of managers on the left, right? And those are like real skills. If somebody is going to be a director of finance or director of operations at an organization, they shouldn't just get to get that job because they've been there in the longest and they like have the passwords to the bank account. They need to like have the hard skills to like do that job. And we have great resources in terms of building managerial culture, like the management center or Rockwood or Highland center or repower, you name it. But at the time there was not a internal evaluation for organizations about like, why are my finances failing? Why are my operations failing? Why am I not achieving my value-driven goals? 
it's because you're building them on faulty systems that don't have the kind of design or evaluation to tell you if they're actually working. My sense is that's true, actually, in organizations, both political and non-for-profit and not. Smaller organizations of every stripe seem to struggle with professional management because it's not easy. No, it's really difficult. I felt like I was able to take that opportunity to sort of explore different management philosophies that have worked across the board and across different industries, did a lot of time exploring sort of the dynamics in things like family business, where there's a lot of interpersonal challenges that rival some progressive organizations. So learning that stuff was important. And then the other thing that I really learned is about how to take a startup from an idea and make it a real thing. And I think we have a lot of people on the left that have extraordinary ideas and lose the long-term vision of how that idea will impact the ecosystem because they can't get out of startup phase. What do you think is getting out of startup phase? What does that mean to you? So I think it means getting to a place of resilient finance, first and foremost. I think it means having a long-term strategic vision that is beyond just the next election cycle. I think it is having a decision matrix and being able to prioritize what is your lane and what is not your lane. How do you allow rapid response to not become the defining factor of your program, right? Unless that's what you want to do. But we have so many organizations that as soon as there is a moment of action, their entire philosophy for whatever their internal programs looks like changes based on that. And I think there's a space for that, but there's also like, we will always need strong grassroots state-based organizations. We will always need mutual aid. We will always need racial justice groups. We will also always need climate groups. And being able to like really identify and define what the purpose is in a way that is stable, I think is important. That to me is getting out of startup mode. So it sounds like you, based on your long history in managing organizations yourself and programs and so on, plus this MBA, you then became a consultant for a while to a lot of organizations that you cared about. Tell me about that phase. Yeah, it was really fun because I got to do both org building work and um, systems consulting, but I also did a few campaigns in there, which I loved. I worked with organizations like People's Action and Working Families Party, Fair Vote, which is a ranked choice voting organization, which I care a lot about. And then I did some races. Rachel Rollins run for Suffolk County District Attorney in Boston, um, first Black woman elected to that position. Absolute badass, that lady. Totally amazing. And also Andrew Valinsky, who was an executive counselor in New Hampshire. He ran for governor. He was the first person in years and years and years to mount a credible and successful campaign in the state advocating for a sales tax and challenging their education funding system. The New Hampshire ed funding argument might be a little bit niche for your audience, but it's like fascinating if you're interested in it. Andy was really sort of a maverick at, at like taking that on at the time. And then I also got to take my own values and my sort of operational knowledge into partnership with this organization called Be a Hero, which was started by um, the late Adi Barkin and his co-founder, Liz Jaff. And I sort of got roped into that through a funder who introduced me to Liz. Liz and I immediately had an argument 
we called each other the next day and we're like, oh, this is just what it's going to be, right? Like we're going to, we're going to do this. And then we became sort of like, she's sort of my twin flame. What does that mean? I keep hearing that term lately. Uh, you're hearing it because there's like a documentary on Netflix. But no, for me, it was like we just really matched each other in terms of our competencies and how we approached problems. Liz is really a sort of like boisterous, big thinker who is admittedly terrible with money or math or management or any of it. And to sort of like pull back to what we were talking about before, the Be Hero Project came to me at a time when my dad had just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. He was actually diagnosed at the end of the Periello campaign, and I started working. Boy, um, he did not catch breaks, did he? No, he really didn't. But, you know, we could do another three hours on what it means for the health consequence of military service, uh, particularly for folks who were injured. My dad was shot in Vietnam, and he he dealt with the, the very complex PTSD and physical symptoms for his whole life. So he had been diagnosed. I was working with Liz and Adi. Obviously, Adi very bravely committed almost his entire life, his whole story of dealing with ALS, the entire truth of what it means to deal with illness like that in a way that obviously really appealed to me because it was so brave and it felt so real to what we were doing, what we had done with my dad, right? And I came on board when they were uh, just about to start the Susan Collins accountability campaign, right? It started very simply. Adi sort of called her out to vote against Kavanaugh because she had made commitments to healthcare. And then it grew an insane amount. Over the course of four months, we raised almost four and a half million dollars for Susan Collins' future opponent, which at the time, you know, was like nobody was really thinking about who was going to primary one of the most popular senators in New England. It was just so viral. We broke the CrowdPack website twice over the course of the confirmation hearings. It was amazing. And at the end of it, we were left with all of these raw resources, which were like the perfect things for us to play with for organizational development, right? Like we had this list of 400,000 people, 200,000 small dollar donors. Adi had gotten an extraordinary amount of press coverage. The campaign had gotten a lot of press coverage. Folks were starting to understand what he was trying to do with his story. We got him to be one of the first people to testify in the Medicare for All hearing in front of Congress. It just really started fast. And so it was a question of like, what do you do to put an organization like that on the path to success? So it can go from being a flash in the pan moment to a like real long-term healthcare justice organization that is rooted in deep values for Medicare for All and the humanity of our shared personal story when it comes to the broken American healthcare system. And it was through Be a Hero that I actually got connected to the Movement Cooperative because I was looking for a place where we could take all of these raw resources that we had accumulated and get the infrastructure we needed to make them impactful as quickly as possible. So I was talking to this guy, Josh Nussbaum, when he was founding it, occasional phone calls, also try to get him like a hundred times to come on the podcast to talk about what he was doing, but he had reasons to choose to not. As often happens, I found with people starting organizations on the left that are trying to do it carefully without necessarily putting a lot of eyes on them. My understanding of it, which might be faulty, was something like 
this is a collective bargaining group for pulling technology and data together. I don't really know. And one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you about it is like, is that what it is? What has it grown into and where are you trying to take it? So that is what it is, but this is the backstory of why it's important. Data and technology infrastructure is essentially something that is unseen until it is not. And I think at the end of 2016, there was a lot of commentary about what failed on the presidential campaign. And Hillary said something about data very early on right, that, right. that may or may not have been correct, but certainly there's may never or may perfect not have been correct, but, but definitely put a spotlight on this sort of like oftentimes unseen, untalked about, and yet extremely important mechanism for campaigns. And so up until 2017, 2018, when, when TMC came together, for a lot of organizations on the left, the move-ons of the world, the, the people's actions of the world, the you know smaller organizations, they did not have access to national voter files, to elite data warehousing, to the kind of data staffing skills, the like hard skills that make all of that stuff helpful down to the place that there were like some cases on the left where like people were still keeping their activist lists in like very large Google Docs and not in a CRM, right? I think one of the things that folks in during that time really came to is that like, if we're going to level up the resistance during the Trump years, we need to have data-driven resistance. And that resistance needs to be put on a world-class data infrastructure that is affordable and accessible to them. And one of the blockers to some of these organizations getting that before TMC is that individually, like it will cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars to hold a modern developing data infrastructure for a singular organization. But in pooling resources and sharing needs across community, we're essentially able to build one and let people take advantage of it as they need to run their programs. Who is in the cooperative? So and, I'm not actually. <laughs> oh, you can't tell me that. No, I'm not actually going <laughs> to. Well, who are the type of organizations that are in the cooperative? It's really interesting. So our organizations run the gamut from very large national organizations that do grassroots and base building work on a state level so that they have like thousands of people using the infrastructure all the way down to like very specific issue advocacy groups that just were never going to ever be a part of the sort of like battleground state coordinated tactics of like campaign time that they needed the infrastructure to do organizing on, on the school board level or like challenge conservative sheriffs across the country or do mutual aid in communities of color or do youth organizing, right? Like there's a whole bucket of progressive organizing and work that falls outside of just the electoral spectrum that is held up and supported by our data infrastructure. What I remember is there were groups like America Votes and State Voices and things like that, that were providing some kinds of support data and tech. Why were they not solving this? And why was there so much space for what you're doing? I think the thing that is true is that like, it is not necessarily advisable for one place to do all things to all people. 
And state voices in America Votes have really specific philosophies about how they do their coordinated C3 work and their coordinated electoral work. That is irreplaceable. The idea of us having a coordinated soft side campaign through America Votes for battleground states and general election work would never sacrifice that. But in that philosophy, there's also a limit of how much people can do and get out of it, right? And like what was missing was a place where these organizations could use the data and the infrastructure to improve themselves to do the type of work that sits outside of those philosophies, right? And in 2017, a lot of that was resistance organizing. A lot of it was engaging communities of color, empowering youth organizing groups, right? And so now, today, TMC members are also State Voices members, are also America Votes members, at least from my perspective. Feels like a pretty harmonious support system. But what they get with TMC is they get to call our strategist and like get advice about how to do their work. And then our strategist will help them do it. And they will own the results of that work and the data involved in that work. And they will be helping each other in that way. And so if I had my way, like every State Voices or America Votes table would also have a TMC component of it, because while they are focused on getting us through these like incredibly challenging electoral moments or working on coordinated voter registration programs, like we can be making their participants better. At all of the stops along the way, whether it was at state parties or the Bernie campaign or uh, governor's campaign in Virginia, you were experiencing, I'm certain, the hodgepodge of solutions that campaigns use. And, uh, and you know that I have had some role in that that expired a long time ago, but I have some awareness of like what the roots of that are with the van or with Catalyst or Target Smart or, or the, the DNC and the state parties. I followed that to some degree. What were you bringing when you came to a movement cooperative about like what is working and what's not working and what do I want to fix? Yeah. So so I think it's really twofold. One is I think from what I saw with Be a Hero, with some of my other clients, and with what a story is that is very true within TMC membership, is that we talk a lot about who, but who is going to be doing the Medicare for All organizing, but who is talking to Muslim voters, um, but how are we like engaging um, AAPI communities outside in like local elections, right? Whenever a group joins TMC, the access to that infrastructure has an immediate impact. It is a force multiplier of their own programs, right? If you're thinking about a group that's working on electoral stuff, for example, like their voter information database tracks the life cycle of every single voter. They will always tell you that that database will make or break the race. Does the candidate talk about that? No. Right. Do you run field programs on it? No, but it is fundamentally like the backbone of everything that we do. If we're talking about data as a utility for democracy work, it's like the underground entity of everything that we see working above the ground. And so while we take it for granted when we flip the light switch on and off, right, 
if the power plant fails, there's no electricity anywhere. And so for me coming to TMC, having seen how important that light is for all of the members, I wanted to make sure TMC moved into long-term sustainability. That like, this is an infrastructure that is not going anywhere because no matter what people want to do every year, whether it is donors who want to focus on working class voters, whether it is organizations that want to engage black communities, whether it is youth groups that are working on climate, they all need the electricity. I wanted to come to TMC to try to sell people on why the power plant is important, right? Like why we have to take care of it. The other thing I wanted to do, and I think the direction that we're heading is that like TMC is also a place of like deep community and collaboration in a way that we don't see in other parts of the progressive organization, right? In real time, the activities that our members are doing are because of the staff and because of the expertise that we have in-house, it really does inform efficiencies across the entire movement. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is how do we turn that community aspect and the creation of those efficiencies into a larger culture of learning, both in terms of research and also in terms of hard skills, right? The way that's looked in the last year, we're in year, I think, three of having a full TMC research team at the organization that's working with members on experiments, that's trying to do deeper learning on our like shared data across the movement. We also hosted the first movement conference in St. Louis in May, which was an opportunity to bring all of our members together to start to re-seed a culture of hard skill learning, particularly with data and technology back into the movement, right? Like we used to have this with Roots Camp. There were opportunities for people to like find community at New Organizing Institute, you know, and we have great partners in Generation Data and Repower and some other groups that are doing this. But if TMC has a has a center of communication with so many organizations and so many people, we should like make sure that we're training those folks. Then they can go out into their work and live in a world where they are running their a bunch of different tools on a data warehouse as opposed to just through a voter file. We have opportunity there. So I'm not clear about what TMC provides as far as data and tech. What is the sort of stack that's available to these organizations or campaigns or whoever is a part of the cooperative? So we provide sort of the whole data infrastructure experience. That is, folks have opportunities to have CRM experience with us. We have multiple voter file options for folks. We have a centralized data warehouse that we maintain. We have a core of data strategists that are available for support. Some of them do very high level stuff with members. Some of them, you know, sort of serve as a a proxy voter file manager, right, for organizations that haven't leveled up their skills in that way. We have the research team, which does a lot of learning and provide opportunities for members to like partner with TMC to run their experiments. And then they also benefit from the TMC community, which is, you know, uh, shared uh, trainings, shared learning opportunities, member-driven working groups on rapid response or particular like issues. So it's a, it is a, it's a big umbrella. How many people work there? We have a, we have a sizable team. That's not a public thing. No, I, I'm not, I can't. It might seem odd, but like there are some things I don't, I'm not going to share just for our own like 
do the members pay to be part of it? Is that how yeah, it's there's, funded? There's, or is it also funded externally by progressive funders? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a healthy mix of both. We have a very large amount of the organization that is sustainable funded by membership dues. And then because we are still young, we are getting to a place of financial sustainability. Philanthropy still plays a role in that. When I was talking to Lauren Bear at Arena earlier today, she was lamenting that funding is challenging for infrastructure type organizations, that dollars often chase candidates rather than uh helping make our long-term organizations sustainable. From your vantage point, it sounds like you have a different model that is maybe a little more successful, but do you see that as well out there? I mean, we have a different model that's a little bit more successful, but the challenge is still real for us too. And I think, look, I think two things are true. I think that we have done a bad job as the progressive left understanding why infrastructure needs to be the first choice always, right? Like I did a panel with some other infrastructure groups at the end of last year. And one of the things that I said is if TMC had the amount of money that went into the gubernatorial campaign in Texas, our organization would last for 15 years. It is an injection that would change the face of data infrastructure for the movement for the foreseeable future, if not forever. The same thing is true for training organizations. The same thing is true for comms hubs. These are places we cannot afford to lose. We can't afford to have them go anywhere. And after a period of time, the thing that is shiny is like the candidate, right? Or the new strategy. But this is an ecosystem-wide thing. This isn't like just philanthropy that's the problem here, right? This is, we are always in some version of rapid response to the point that like, we're not actually- It's kind of politics, the way politics works, unfortunately. But you know, look, the truth is, is if like I could, if every donor that I've ever talked to is listening to this podcast, the thing that I would tell them is like, don't like not donate to candidates, don't not have the organizations- that you are interested in what they're experimenting with or doing that year. But understand the first five, 10% of what you're giving should go to the tools and the places that are actually making those organizations better, right? There's a multiplier effect to that. Yeah, it's a, it is absolutely a multiplier effect, right? Like any dollar that a donor gives to TMC doesn't just support TMC's overhead, it makes TMC exist for dozens of other organizations who are also using that donor's money to run program. So like if I was giving somebody a million dollars to do a canvas, I would want them to have the best data infrastructure possible to do that canvas because otherwise they're using my money to build the same thing that's already there. There are a lot of really smart donors and philanthropists and donor advisors out there that really get this argument deeply. And I'm, I'm very happy that over the last couple of years, I think more people are coming to it. But every other penny you spend on the movement is better if you're spending your pennies on infrastructure too. When I think about the types of organizations that are relevant to that discussion or should be relevant to that discussion, and I've been in the space for a long time and interviewed a lot of people who know a lot more than me about it, my head spins with is it 
you know, there's stuff at the DNC, there's stuff at the state parties, there's for-profit companies, there's non-profit companies. There are companies that are LLCs that are owned by trusts. There are cooperatives. I don't know what your business, you know, how it's exactly organized, but there's you. And, and we are, as a movement, experimenting with lots of these things real time, trying to make them cooperate. Data is located at many different hubs, including with you. And like you said earlier, like there are some of that is advantageous in that people can specialize to different needs and audiences and serve them. But do you have a philosophy about how we should be organizing and owning data and tech infrastructure? I do. No, Molly, my dog has decided I'm done with this. She's well, like, I mean, often when I ask that question, the animals start to complain. So look, I think of civic infrastructure um, as like a layer underneath all of the core work. It streamlines it. It makes it easier for everybody to do what they do best. They don't have to worry about maintaining it or building it. It is just this like reliable foundation upon which we build our movement. I think that there are two parts of that that are important. There is for the data and tech, there are, there's sort of this like core undeniable center, right? It's, we need a voter file. We need a data warehouse. We need a way to visualize that data. We need like a CRM or something to sort our voters or our uh, activists into and classify and capture the data we want to capture. And then there is this other universe of like texting tools, relational organizing tools, innovative tactical tools, data acquisition companies. All of that I count as tools outside of the infrastructure. Because ultimately, like if a tool goes away or a tool changes, it doesn't actually rock the foundation. Something else fills into its place. So there's always a space for like a healthy competitive political tech market. But I think that that center core needs to have more attention paid to it if for a long-term structure. And I don't actually know what the right structure is. I mean, I have my ideas, but I think that what we're experiencing now is sort of the pressures of having our entire ecosystem, including our infrastructure, be a for-profit um, ecosystem for 20 plus years, right? The political market is finite. It is small and it does not scale. We're always going to have the same amount. I mean, you know, give or take, right? It's going to be the same amount of races, right? It's going to be a comparable amount of organizations doing comparable amount of work in certain places. That is not a market that is ripe for capitalistic scale without. Well, I mean, it's grown tremendously since. It has, but, yeah. it, but it, but it's, but there is a limit, and I think we're starting to push up against that limit. For me, I want to see infrastructure that is built for the market as opposed to options that are built for the profit. That doesn't mean I think our for-profit partners are bad by any means. Like they are extraordinary and have contributed a great amount to our movement. I think about it like a grocery store, right? Like here in Vermont, we have Shaw's, right? We're always going to have Shaw's. I'm still going to go to Shaw's to get the stuff I need to get from Shaw's. But that doesn't mean I'm not also going to be a member of my local co-op, right? Getting the stuff that I need 
from that space as well. So like I might choose to get my staples at the co-op, but I'll get the rest of my groceries at Shaw's. Some of those pieces that are built by for-profit companies, is there a temptation to build them internally to replace them so that you don't have to deal with that model? For TMC right now, I no, I don't think that there is. Our model is very service oriented. We are a convener of the market. We are not, um, we right now are not a tool builder, right? A lot of people are out there building tools. And I think the position that the movement cooperative has that our members want is for us to serve as a validator for experiences that will deliver to the needs of their organizations, right? We're at this interesting time where a lot of new things are being built, but not a lot of new things are at a place where they can support the kind of experience that we've had with our long-term infrastructure solutions. So TMC is holding the ground in the middle of that, right? Of like making sure our members can talk about and design their future experiences while still having something that is stable and trusted and going to get us through what is challenge number, I don't know, six or seven to the fabric of our democracy. <laughs> oh my God. You know? and quite a challenge it is. Yeah. Uh, so does that mean that different members are having different stacks combining different pieces together then? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. TMC has dozens and dozens and dozens of like really awesome partners, both nonprofit and for-profit. And we are constantly talking to and scoping new companies that are opening, that are bringing offerings for innovative tactics, for better ad buys, better texting, whatever it is. We're in conversation with most of them because we want our members to not just like, yeah, we just always want them to be getting better and having more impact. And, you know, so. When you look at that, that sort of ecosystem that's producing the tools and the data that you are supplying in this way, what is making you most optimistic about it? And what is worrying you the most? What is making me the most optimistic about it is that we are starting to have folks who are developing tech for some of the challenges that are really existential, but we don't think about a lot and the way that they impact the quality of our life as people who are working in the movement and dedicated to the movement are really important, right? Like there's this great company called Brightlines that works exclusively on anti-doxing technology, right? Like that's super important. There are a number of companies, whether it be Reach or Relentless or Impactive that are constantly trying to grow our relational tools and like figure out how to make our organizing more human-based and more interconnected. I think that's really important. And I think the amount of like field people that are building stuff is super cool to me because as a former field rep myself, I think all good ideas come out of a field office as opposed to a focus group in San Francisco or something. What's making me nervous is I'm always concerned about companies that are building on the sort of market timeline of political tech, right? Which is like two to four years to scale, gain market, or they have to diversify their product and start bringing in non-political clients or they have to get acquired to like, you know, stay 
Is that sort of the higher ground labs model that you're referring no, to? No, no, it's not higher ground lab. It's just the political tech market. Higher ground labs does a great job. I'm on their advisory board. I talk about this challenge a lot, but that doesn't mean that I think they're their contribution to like helping smaller companies innovate to try to meet these challenges is, is a bad one. The other thing that's making me sort of nervous is like, there's also a question of who we are letting or who we as a movement are like empowering to develop and innovate. I don't think that there are nearly enough black and brown founders that are able to access the level of capital and support that they need quickly in the same way that other folks are. I think that there is still this dynamic that deprioritizes women founders. And we're at the time right now where like, if you look at any of the infrastructure shops across the progressive left, they're run by women right now. And we are sort of at this place where the ladies are really making the calls about what is going to happen with our data and technology in the future. And I want to see more of them get the capital quickly with a level of trust and investment um, that would never even go, it would never even be a question if they were the latest sort of like male Svengali, right? So yeah, that's what I'd have to say. If I were starting a political tech company now, as opposed to back in 97 when I did it, if I heard this conversation and I knew about you, I would immediately think, wow, that is one of the biggest influencers and buyers of political tech. I have to get their attention. I need them to know about this product that I've built and I want to talk their members into looking at it. How does a founder access you and your organization? Is there any complexity to that? How do they come to you and if, if someone's in that position, what should they do? Yeah. I mean, we're very available and open to the conversation. Look, TMC is growing in terms of how it is also developing an interface for vendors to be a part of our community and talk with our community. But we do have a really great vendor experience team at TMC that will jump on the phone with any founder, walk through any demo, start to vet that product it is really not a hard thing to get in touch with us. Because when I talk to people who are founders of that sort of tech, they, they will say, oh, I've taken it to a state party. They don't have the bandwidth to, to even try this. They're getting pitched by dozens of similar things. You guys can actually look at everything that's out there and give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down or... or yeah, yeah. yeah, for the most part, yes. Look, I think we still have a challenge like everybody has a challenge of that, that oftentimes it is really hard. It's a really high threshold of adoption for new technology, just period. The way that we train up our field organizers, our campaign managers, our data people is like, oftentimes the first thing that they think of and reach for is the thing that they have used their entire, like it, it's what they were taught on. It's what, you know, even in 2017, like I think about my insistence on using a particular texting service over another because I knew they had a van API. I had just used it before. So I knew how to use it. So the the part that we are trying to start of like, sort of like get our arms around at the cooperative is like, how do we, how can we learn that out of people? I mean, it has its benefits in some ways, right? You know, being an expert in a tool brings down the threshold of having to learn it, it's, which is helpful. But you know, we just want to expose people to what the options are in a real way. 
I think our next phase of growth in this is really aligning with vendors to be allies in that experience. Not that TMC is going to become a marketing team for any one organization, but I think it is in being able to be a concentrated point of learning about a tool. You know, the community will decide and vet itself what it wants to use and why, but we can incentivize them to think about it and consider it as an add-on to their stack. If you were advising some new vendor, where else should they go beyond you if they are trying to get something out broadly into the progressive political ecosystem that's tech or data? It depends on what, what it is, but I'll say this, like there are some spaces where I think you could have a really high adoption rate it might not be immediately profitable. But for me, if I had a tool that I could make equitably priced for local races, for state ledge races, like I would go where the volume is and really adopt that tool to the needs of folks that are working. At- and there are some things out there like Universe that I think Civitech is working on something. There are sort of long tail products that are aimed at the low end, including AI type campaign ideas. People are innovating in this way. It's it's how I think it's how I think folks should do if they're trying to capture it. The other place is there's a really wonderful project called Progressive Victory, uh, which is doing a lot of organizing on Discord and in, in in online communities where their volunteer base is not going to be traditionally housed in volunteer activist codes from the last like six elections. And so I would also look to folks who are trying to innovate into universes of, of potential users that are not the traditional like show up at the campaign office type. And I think that folks who are starting to build their tools for audiences that are engaging in more online identity as opposed to like traditional field identity, it's going to be important too. Are there any other like really big gaps that you see that you wish someone would come in and provide a solution for our side? We have a lot of good relational tools. We have a lot of good texting tools. I want to see more sort of non-traditional relational organizing tech meaning for those online audiences, for Twitch streams, for YouTube, for Discord. The other space I would love to see some innovation in is a better, it's like events tool. We don't have a lot of good options when it comes to, we have some options, um, and some, but not a lot of options when it comes to how we're going to connect our event builds to our organizing programs, right? There used to be different, some different choices. So that's a space. But then I think fundamentally where our biggest challenge is, is that, we don't have we don't have a lot of CRM options, like a diverse menu of them. And I think we are still sort of at this place where like, you know, are we building too many texting tools? Like, do we need another one? Are we not as a movement making strategic investments in the things that are working and improving those as opposed to trying to build a new thing? Um, yeah. It's a tricky thing to try to get some central planning into innovation because it's sometimes you can't, you can't get the right ideas from the top down and you, you want the experiments to be out there. One thing that I just did want to ask you about is to what degree do you look at the model that the Republicans, the right has for data and tools? And if you are up on that, how does that compare? 
I think that the comparison is really where they've sort of chosen to put their power centers, right? Like we have built value-based organizations and companies to hold the competencies that we need for these infrastructures. A lot of the decision-making and choice about how their data experiences are really like done by consultants and have a little bit more of a decentralized process. I don't know if that's necessarily bad, uh, but I think that we have built our movement on the value of like using the tools to build the house we want. I would like to continue to do that. Julie, if you could wave your wand and compel some significant changes quickly, what would be the top couple that you would want to have happen? The first thing that I would do is I would wave my wand and similar to mass hypnosis, if you will, I would have every donor, donor advisor, philanthropist, foundation, wake up and realize that 10% of what they're giving to the movement, if put into civic infrastructure, will put rocket fuel behind the progress of the movement. And at a time when we are about to, again, fight for democracy, we need to recognize that the power plant needs some attention because if it breaks, there's no other choice. We've had our good billionaires come in and take their swings at parts of this. And I feel like maybe not in the most successful ways from time to time. If you're advising such people, how would you want them to direct those that 10% beyond your entity or including your entity? I mean, give it to GMC first. Uh, no, I think that like, look, I think you have to ask the question of what are you trying to do and for, and for whom? Because the what you're trying to do is like very easily answered in new innovation or in like popping up a new project or in like investing. It is the for whom that I think sort of dooms things to fail or feel like they are unsuccessful for the investor. The movement isn't going to adopt technology just because it's a good idea. We are constantly fighting for resources. We are constantly trying to get a competitive advantage. We are constantly trying to make as big of an impact with too little people, too little time, and too little money, right? If you are building something for us or with us, it needs to be to answer those constraints first before it's just a good idea. Because if you don't answer those constraints first, you will constantly build a product that has pain points that are just not negotiable for the movement, right? Like whether or not we like it, elections happen on a calendar. And if you don't talk to a campaign that you want to adopt a tool about how to develop that tool for their use, at some point, they're going to stop using it because they don't have enough time to continue to try to like figure it out. And so I would say like, you need to bring us in from the beginning. There has to be enough real market research to, to answer the for whom question. The other thing that I would say is like, this isn't the movement of 2016 anymore. We are replete with organizations that have engineering teams that are like leveling up their data uh, knowledge and their ability to build things. The presence of TMC alone for some of these organizations has been transformational for the way that they think about their data and tech experience. 
I would ask people to look at what these organizations are trying to build themselves or are looking to try to solve themselves and then build with them. Or just like strategically invest in what's already working for us. It doesn't have to be like the new thing. There's more power in like the validation of an experience that is actually helping us than there is in trying to create something different. So I would say that. So that's what I would do with my magic wand. But it's not just the good billionaires. I need movement donors who are like invested in climate action or invested in racial justice action to also understand you can't invest in climate organizing or racial justice organizing or youth organizing without investing in the infrastructure those things sit on. And I talk to donors often where they say, all I'm investing in is is climate, right? And I say, that's great. Don't not do that. Do that. But also invest in the tools and the infrastructure that those organizations are using. Because otherwise, like we talked about earlier, you are not getting that impact multiplication on your money. Not only that, but if Trump wins instead of Biden, the difference for climate is heading one direction versus heading the other direction. And it's beyond the amount of spending that you can ever put into this, the electoral outcomes. Anyway, I have probably worn you out, but is there a question I should have asked you that I failed to? I just want to say one more thing I would do with my magic wand. Excellent. Right. Okay. Um, so the, the thing, the other thing that I would do is for the movement, right? Like we have organizations that evaluate their collaboration with other movement partners as like, do we get on a, you know, do we get on a call once a week and like tell each other what we're doing? And then that's how we, you know, say we're having a coordinated program, right? I want folks to start thinking first and foremost, like, how is my data working with and impacting my coalition partners data? And can it be better? Because I think that if we have coalitions across the movement that are trying to like use the information they are capturing to improve each other's work. That's real. That's real coordination. That's real coalition building. That is, that is the stuff that's helping everybody level up. I want that. I guess, lastly, I want like a deep investment in recruiting real finance and operations professionals into movement work. All I want is a magic wand to give to lots of people like you. Because <laughs> I think that would be... <laughs> I'll tell all your friends. <laughs> well, lovely to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? I don't think so. I mean, I think that we've covered a lot and some of this stuff can can feel really inaccessible, but I appreciate your questions. And I really just, I really want more people to ask and learn more about why this infrastructure or stuff is not just like interesting, but also existential. I get it. I appreciate your working on it. That was Julia Barnes. She is at movementcooperative.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.